I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 67. Psalm 67. If the opening words of this psalm sound familiar to you, which I will read in just a few moments, it's because they are lifted from Numbers chapter 6, verses 24 through 26, which is a passage commonly referred to as the Aaronic benediction, uh, the blessing that God told Moses to tell Aaron, the high priest, to speak over the nation of Israel. The Lord bless you, keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Verse 1 of Psalm 67 is a paraphrase of this blessing. Aaron's words, they would have immediately come into the mind of an ancient Hebrew reader of this psalm. So I'm bringing them to your mind and your attention as we look together at Psalm 67, starting in verse 1. God, be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you will judge the peoples with uprightness Guide the nations on the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. This is the word of the Lord. What would have also caught the attention of one very familiar with Aaron's blessing is the, the sudden transition that this psalm makes into verse 2, which says that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all the nations. You see, Aaron's blessing originally was for the nation of Israel. The Lord make his face to shine on you, on you, the people of God. But suddenly the psalmist here shifts gears. He, he doesn't go where he's expected to go. He proclaims that the reason for God's blessing is not so that only one nation, one people, might benefit. It is so that the whole earth will benefit. God did choose one nation, but he never lost sight of the others. God chose one nation not so that, that they would hoard the knowledge of the Creator, but so that the knowledge of a God who loves and pursues all people might be made known through them. How does this work? First of all, notice that the writer of this psalm is asking God or asking for God to cause his face to shine on us. In the original blessing, Aaron was asking that, that blessing over the nation, God caused his face to shine upon you. The writer of this psalm includes himself. He makes it personal. He is claiming the favor of God for Israel, for the people of God. When God turns his face towards you, he makes his favor known to you. How do you know that someone is fully engaged? How do you know that someone's giving you their attention, that they are listening to what you are saying? Well, you know because you can see it in their face. You might say to a child, you've probably said to a child, look at me when I'm talking to you. You want to know that, that they are present, that they are listening, and their face is going to tell you that, just like your faces are telling me this morning. When, when God turns his face towards you, he engages you. He, he is fully present, and he is making his presence known. 
the, the smile of, of a loved one or a friend, the intensity of eager eyes as a person listens to what you are saying to them. The face, what does it do? Well, it, it shines in moments such as those. Regardless of where you, you stand on the mask issue as we pass through that long COVID season, regardless of where you stand on that particular issue, I think we can all agree that it was hard to communicate with one another through face mask. It wasn't just that the words were muffled, it was that you could not see the fullness of the other person's expression. Their face did not shine. And I realized during that time of mass masking how much our faces talk, and you probably did too. I realized how much our faces shine with expression when suddenly half of everyone's face is covered up. A person's presence in a conversation is largely indicated by their physical expressions. When a, person, when a person's face, when it shines, their expression indicates that their heart is turned toward you. When we're asking God to shine his face upon us, we are asking that his heart be turned with fullness upon us. So what does it look like when God's heart is turned toward the object of his desire? For Israel, for the nation, it looked like the prosperity of the land. It looked like sunlight and moderate rain and, and good harvest. It looked like peace within the nation and protection from enemies without. It looked like the experience of those things in life that make life good. God's blessings are received in marriage and, and children and in an honest day's work, God's outpoured goodness is, is on display in a great meal, right? In spring weather, like we're seeing and experiencing today. In health. In contentment. And these types of favored physical circumstances, they were God's intention for the ancient nation of Israel. Listen to Deuteronomy 28.8. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. And he will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. So far, so good. Why? Why is that? Well, the next verse, Deuteronomy 28, 9. What is the reason that God would, would show favor toward Israel? 28, 9 says, The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. The people of God follow the design of God. They will be a people who are clearly set apart unto him. And that's important because of what the next verse in Deuteronomy 28 says. Verse 10. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. When the people of God walk in the ways of God, the peoples of the earth will see that we belong to God. This is the same essential message of Psalm 67. The reason that we want God's face turned toward us is so that, verse 2, your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. God desired that, that the nations around Israel see him in his people, and he still desires the same for you and me. Now God reveals, he reveals his ways and his salvation in a multitude of different ways, but he has determined, God has determined that the 
primary way that he will do so is through his people. So if you're a Christian, then God has turned his face toward you so that you might reveal him to others. Jesus said, Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. Being a witness clearly and certainly means that you speak the truth. It also means that you demonstrate the truth. I love how the Apostle Paul puts it to the Galatian believers. Galatians 5.6, for in Christ Jesus, neither uncircumcision nor circumcision means anything but faith working through love. In other words, God's way is not made clear, not in its totality at least, through the careful observance of the law. God's way is not made clear in its totality through any particular set of rules or regulations. If God is revealed through, through just sheer conformity to the letter of the law, then the Pharisees, they did not deserve the rebukes that they got from Jesus. Jesus was just being, being mean, and they, and they weren't really hypocrites. But, of course, we know that's not the case. Even in the case of, of ancient Israel, conformity to the letter of the law was not the goal that God ultimately had in mind. Obedience is empty apart from love. Jesus said, Jesus said that loving God first and loving others next are the greatest and the second greatest commandments, respectively. And then he goes on to say, Matthew twenty-two forty, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Don't miss that. Love God, love others. Everything, Jesus' words, not mine, everything written in the law of Moses and everything spoken by the prophets Hang on love. If you fail to love God and others, your obedience is empty. Your, my worship, is futile. And that is exactly why Paul wrote that in Christ Jesus, all that matters is faith working through love. Your faith is expressed by your love. Let me say that again for myself just as much as for anyone else. Your faith is expressed through your love. If you don't love God, you don't love others, you do not have faith. You have something, but it's not faith. And without faith, Hebrews 11:6, it is impossible to please God. Love is what paves the way for God's salvation to be made known among the nations. We know the message of John 3:16. We know it so well that, that we easily miss the motivation for the message, for God so loved the world. And he gave his only begotten son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. In order to rush to the message, that is, that Jesus saves from eternal death, we risk missing the motivation for God so loved the world. The message is eternal life in Christ. The motivation is the love of the Father. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the message is rooted in the love of God. If you are a Christian, God revealed the gospel to you because he loves you. If you are not a Christian, God wants to reveal the gospel to you because he loves you. 
How is God's way made known on the earth through the love expressed by the people of God? We speak the truth in love. We live the truth in love. How is God's salvation made known among the nations? Through the love of his people. Faith working through love. Jesus put it like this, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before me in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. The light of God's face turned toward you shines through you when you do deeds of love. You say, perhaps, Jesus said good works. He did not say deeds of loves. You're right. He did, he did say good works. But try this. Try to describe a good deed without including love or including others. What kind of good deed is Jesus talking about if it is not a deed done unto others? And what kind of deed is Jesus talking about if it is not a deed that is done in love? Why should the light of God's face shine through the deeds of God's people? Why should they? Verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. God is after your praise. God is after your praise. The end for which God is working is not simply to possess a people for himself. Make no mistake, God is certainly securing a people for himself. And he is doing so through the proclamation of the good news of his son. The gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. Every nation, tongue, tribe, and people will hear, will have the opportunity to respond. God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself, and we have been committed with that word of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. The gospel, the good news, is that Jesus Christ was judged as an enemy of God so that you can be called a friend of God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink the cup of God's fellowship. Jesus was condemned in your place so that you can stand unashamed in the presence of God. But that is not the end. God draws you and me into relationship with him for more than the sake of relationship. That's important. Don't get me wrong. It's very important. Salvation is restorative at its core, no doubt. But the goal toward which God is moving is this. Let all the peoples praise you. And is that not the, the glorious picture that we receive at the end of days, Revelation 7, 9? After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. It's a picture at the end. God is after a people of praise. What will be at the end was at the beginning. What I mean by that? God prepared an entire heavens and earth for the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. As imagers of God with the ability to reflect in their characters, God's very character, the first man and woman, were put on the earth to rule and to subdue it. They and their children were to be kings and queens and, and priests, co-reigning with God, looking toward him to meet their every need, and thanking him as he provided physically and emotionally and spiritually. 
they were to live faithful lives. And that's, in fact, what praise means in Hebrew. It means to give thanks. It's the same idea. And in acknowledging from whom all the goodness and blessings of life flow and returning thanks to their creator, Adam and Eve, would fulfill the purpose for which they were created. God is not only restoring your relationship with him in Christ. He is making you a person of praise. Praise is what God is after. The overflow of a grateful heart continually directed toward him. So why does God desire praise? Why does he desire it? The answer is not that he needs it. It's not the answer. The, the self-sustaining, eternally complete, and perfectly satisfied God does not need a thing. He did not create you or me or save you or me because he needs us. He does, however, want a people who freely love him. And he desires that your love be expressed to him through your praise. We saw that we express God's love to others through our deeds. We express God's love to him that he's placed in us through our praise. Let's go a little deeper. It's been pointed out by C.S. Lewis that people spontaneously praise whatever they value. Think about that. Whether or not a person is a Christian, we all sing the praises of something. Some people praise a, a good hunting dog, others a good movie. You praise a good song when you hear it, or maybe a good meal at its completion. You praise your spouse, you praise your children, maybe even praise your favorite football team, Hell State, right? Some people praise the way that someone else has decorated a room. Others praise a car or an author of a book they like or a video game. Why do you do that? Why do you praise? Well, as Lewis said, because you value the object of your praise. We can't help but, but heap praise upon those things that are most valuable or important or significant to us. Do you value God? Everything that makes life worth living, everything that makes life good, everything that will endure unto eternity flows from God. So many people, they see a sunset or they stand at the edge of the Grand Canyon, or they hold a, a newborn baby, and they simply swell with gratitude. They can't help it. It's a good thing. The problem is, though everybody, everybody feels the need to give thanks, many people don't know whom to direct their thanksgiving. And so they simply resort to saying, I'm thankful, which really, if you think about it, is a pretty silly statement the very act of being thankful requires an object to be thankful toward. If your husband, wives, gives you flowers, you don't say, I'm so thankful for these flowers. Well, you might say that, but what you mean is thank you, honey, for these flowers. You give thanks because you've received something. Something has been given. A gift requires a giver. Yet, yet so many people, they, they, they walk through life feeling gratitude for all that they receive. They, they can't help feeling gratitude, yet they have no one to express that gratitude toward. Not ultimately. 
you don't sit beside your best friend and watch the sunset and thank him or her for it. They didn't make it happen. Of course, for the believer, this is no longer a dilemma. We thank God. We praise God. And God takes pleasure in receiving praise and thanksgiving for what he has done and what we acknowledge that he has done. And, you know, as imagers of God, we, we do the same thing. We feel slighted if we do something for someone and do not hear a thank you. You might not say anything. You, you, you might not express any emotion on the surface, but, but the cycle is, is incomplete. You don't need to hear thank you to, to satisfy your ego. It's, it's not an issue of pride. It's because you and me, we're hardwired to be a people of praise, giving thanks where thanks is due. And, and so we're also wired to desire that our efforts be duly acknowledged, which goes back to love, doesn't it? You praise what you value. If you acknowledge that, that everything you value comes from God, then you praise him and God receives your praise as an act of love. If you say to your spouse, you look magnificent, you're praising her, you're honoring her, you're ultimately expressing love to her, and it's the same with God. And that's what God is, is after, a people of praise. A God of love desires to be loved in return, and love toward God is expressed in praise. Let all the nations praise you. It's not only that God is after praise from all the peoples, he also desires that they be joyful. Verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. The pursuit of, of happiness, pursuing happiness, it's a quest that everyone is on, whether they acknowledge it or not. Every decision you make at some level has behind it the desire to be happy. Think about that. Even if your decision does not result in immediate happiness, say, perhaps rolling out of bed tomorrow morning to go to a job that you're not especially excited about, you still do so because the paycheck makes you happy. Or the coming vacation toward which you are accruing days by rolling out of bed and going to work makes you happy. Or the food that you're going to buy with your paycheck Makes you happy. Eating when we're hungry makes us all happy. You might not be pursuing short-term happiness, but you are pursuing long-term gratification behind every decision you make. Yale University, they offer a class on happiness. It's in fact the most popular class to be offered in the university's 320-year history. It was only taught in a physical classroom one time in the spring of 2018. 1,200 students attended. They filled the largest meeting space on campus. There is now a 10-week free version available online. Some of you are thinking about jotting that down. As of March 2021, over 3.3 million people had signed up. People are interested in happiness. I probably didn't need to give you statistics about a happiness class at Yale to tell you that. And it's not that the pursuit of happiness or joy or gladness or whatever synonym you choose to use, it's not that that's a bad thing. In fact, like the need to give thanks, the desire to be happy is God-given. 
It's God-given. It's present whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. The desire is not wrong. David says in Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. A motivating factor to be in the presence of God is that that is where we will experience the fullness of what we all want to experience, namely joy. The desire for happiness is not wrong. It's the ways in which we pursue it that get us in trouble. Anytime we are pursuing happiness outside of God's design or intention, we trade the real thing for a cheap and destructive counterfeit. The psalmist calls the nations to be glad and sing for joy. And he appeals to this universal desire for happiness. He grounds this appeal in two things. Notice verse 4. First he states, you God will judge the peoples with uprightness. So he grounds the joy and well-being of God's people in the justice of God. The problem is, if God does judge the peoples of the nations according to his righteous standard, which he will, then that is not a cause of joy or gladness. Because there's no one who will meet that standard of uprightness. However, there's a second thing that the writer of the psalm grounds his appeal for the universal desire of happiness in. You will guide the nations on the earth. Still in verse 4. The joy and well-being of the people of God are also rooted in the guidance of God. He will be our shepherd. The nations will follow him. And somehow in this combination of God as judge and God as shepherd, the nations will be glad and sing for joy. The reason is because the judge is the shepherd. We know that Jesus Christ will sit as judge over the nations. He tells the parable about it, Matthew 25. Jesus says, he, referring to himself, will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Listen to how this parable, which is familiar to all of you, listen to how this parable brings the judge and the shepherd together. There's something else interesting about Jesus' words that follow. If you recall, Jesus will judge individuals of the nations based on whether or not their faith was working through love. When did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you naked and clothe you? When did we see you in prison and come visit you? Jesus will answer those who demonstrated faith through acts of love with these words. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. And of course, the ones who do not demonstrate faith through love will hear the opposite. There's the standard. Perfect love. How will you stand before the judge? You will not. I will not. At least not apart from the work of the shepherd. The judge who condemns is also the shepherd who saves. When judged by the, the perfect standard of the law, loving God and loving others perfectly, you fell. And I fell. 
these will go away into eternal punishment. The gospel tells us a different story. If you are a Christian, then you will not be condemned by the judge. You will be rescued by the shepherd. The judge stepped down from the bench and he stood in the place of the condemned. The shepherd took the fall for the sheep. The one whose words condemned is the one whose death and resurrection saved. Why would the righteous, that is the sheep, go into eternal life? Because the shepherd laid down his life for them. He took the punishment they deserved. Jesus rose from the dead, and now he secures eternal life for all who call upon his name in faith. And that is why the Christian is glad and sings for joy. The sheep are those who demonstrate the love of God in the most practical ways. That is supernatural love. That is implanted in us and expressed through us on the basis of what the shepherd has done for us. It doesn't come from ourselves. The goats, on the other hand, are those who do not demonstrate the love of God because they have no love to demonstrate. They will be judged with uprightness and they will be found unrighteous. To clarify, works, works never have or never will give anyone a right standing before God. That is not what Jesus was teaching in this parable. He spoke of the evidence of the love of God in your life. Love reveals the saving faith that is there. A lack of love reveals that there's no faith present. And it is because of the lack of love that those referred to as goats will be condemned. So either you will be judged or you will trust the shepherd, Jesus Christ, to bear the judgment for you. Verse 6, Psalm 67. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. This verse seems a bit out of place. The idea of the whole earth yielding an abundant harvest does not, at first, make sense. That is, it does not really seem to tie in with the rest of this psalm. But we have already observed how the evidence of God's blessing resting upon the nation of Israel was good harvest, full barns, abundant provision, production in the fields. Therefore, if the whole earth, the whole earth, is enjoying such bounty, it is because our God blesses us. And the only way that the entire earth could experience such favor is if the curse has been lifted. What curse is that? Back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, one consequence among several, one consequence of that sin was this, cursed is the ground because of you. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Sin not only affected our relationship with God. Sin not only distorted man's view of happiness. Sin not only misplaced our gratitude. Sin also created a hostile environment on the earth. The soil no longer cooperates as it once did. Growing food is not always, probably usually not a pleasant process. The death and resurrection of Jesus breaks the curse of sin over the individual who believes. 
But the death and resurrection does not reverse the curse upon the ground, at least not yet. Not yet. That is coming. But it will come. Verse 6, the whole earth will once more yield its produce. A sure sign that God has bestowed his favor upon all the nations and such a glorious reversal of nature's order will grab the attention of the peoples and nations. All the earth, all the ends of the earth may fear him. And the reason I point this out is because it explains a lot of our present tension. We acknowledge that every good thing in this life finds its source in the goodness of God. And we recognize God's blessings when we have health and when we have possessions and when our families and friends are doing well. But does acknowledging God's favor mean that the opposite is also true? Does it mean that when you experience suffering, loss, and hardship, that God's face is no longer turned toward you? Does it also mean that? No, it does not. In fact, it is often in our sufferings and difficulties that God's way is made known on the earth. God's way and salvation of verse 2 are just as apparent, if not more so, in the tribulations as they are in the blessings. We know that because we're living in the in-between. The creation has fallen, the creation is yet to be renewed, and we're in the middle. The earth will yield its produce, but today the effects of the fall are all around us, and sometimes within us. The rain falls on the righteous, falls on the unrighteous, and you can no more say that when the wicked prosper, it is a sign of God's favor, than you can say that when the righteous suffer, it is a sign of God's rejection. Everyone experiences frustration or loss or grief. Being a Christian does not make you immune to those things. We all understand that. Being a Christian does mean that when your loved one is, is dying of cancer or when your adult child has abandoned the faith or when you lose your job or when your marriage is difficult or when any other of a hundred undesirable situations arise, being a Christian does mean that you can be certain that God is still causing his face to shine upon you. It does mean that. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Here's the truth. If you are a Christian, the veil that, that covered your face, the veil that kept you from gazing upon the face of God has been lifted. It was removed in Christ. And because your sins were judged in Jesus at the cross, they would ne never be laid upon you. There is no barrier between you and the Lord any longer. You are assured, if you are a Christian, that God's face is turned towards you because 
It was hidden from his son. It was hidden from his son at the cross. And you are assured that the face of God will never be turned from you again because due to the resurrection, the favor of God will never be withdrawn from Jesus again. And you are united to him. The veil has been removed. The veil of unbelief that cast your heart in a shadow is gone. And now you behold the glory of God as reflected in Jesus Christ. And as you gaze upon the Lord Jesus in faith, you are transformed into his image. Meg was a pastor's wife. She and her husband, they had two children, Peggy and Joey. Both were born with cystic fibrosis. Both Peggy and Joey stayed skinny regardless of how much they ate. Twice a day, Meg had to pound on both of their chests to clear out the mucus. Both children spent several weeks a year in the hospital. Joey died at the age of 12. Peggy, much to the surprise of the medical profession, lived much longer until the age of 23. The following is a letter that's written by Meg to the Christian author of the book where I read this story. And it was written to him after Peggy's death. I find myself wanting to tell you something of how Peggy died. I don't know why except that the need to talk about it is so compelling and since I refuse to put my friends here through it more than once, I have run out of people to tell. The weekend before she went into the hospital for the last time, Peggy came home all excited about a quotation from William Barclay that her minister had used. She was so taken with it, she had copied it down on a three by five card for me. It read, endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. She said her minister must have had a hard week because after he read it, he banged the pulpit and then turned his back to them and cried. After Peggy had been in the hospital for a while and things were not going well, she looked around at all the paraphernalia of death to which she was attached. Then she said, hey, Ma, remember that quotation? And she looked around again at all the tubes, stuck the tip of her tongue out of the corner of her mouth, nodded her head, and raised her eyes in excitement at the experiment to which she was committing herself. Her commitment held as long as her awareness of anything in the real world held. Once the president of her college came to see her and asked if there's anything specific he could pray for. She was too weak to talk, but nodded to me to explain the Barclay quote and ask him to pray her hard time would be turned into glory. I was sitting beside her bed a few days before her death when suddenly she began screaming. I'll never forget those shrill, piercing, primal screams. Nurses raced into the room from every direction and surrounded her with their love. It's okay, Peggy, one said. Jenny's here. The nurse stroked her body. Eventually, with their words and their touches, they soothed her. Though as time went by and the screaming continued, they could not. 
I've rarely seen such compassion. Wendy, Peggy's special nurse friend, tells me there isn't a nurse on the floor who does not have at least one patient she would give one of her lungs to save if she could. So it's against this background of human beings falling apart. Nurses can only stay on the floor so long because they could do no more to help. That God, who could have helped, looked down on a young woman devoted to him, quite willing to die for him to give him glory, and decided to sit on his hands and let her death top the horror charts for cystic fibrosis deaths. Peggy never complained against God. It was no pious restraint. <clears throat> I don't think it ever occurred to her to complain. And none of us who lived through her death with her complained at the time either. We were upheld. God's love was so real. One could not doubt it or rail against its ways. If I've been telling you all this in an effort to come to some kind of resolution to the problem of Peggy's and my pain, perhaps I've been brought once again to the only thing that helps me experience God's love, his stroking, his I'm here, Meg. Maybe it seems odd for me to have read that in light of Psalm 67. But if you listened closely, it was all there. God's favor toward Peggy, even though it appeared to be punishment. Peggy's gratitude to God, even through the pain. The nurses demonstrating their faith through loving Peggy. The testimony of God's ways and salvation to the ends of the earth, after all, we just heard about it. It's a testimony. The expectation of a new creation where cystic fibrosis does not exist. The curse has been lifted. And lastly, the quote. Endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. This was Peggy's way of gazing upon the face of God reflected in the Son of God. Simply enduring. Endurance is faith. And because she was assured that God's face was turned toward her regardless of her circumstances, she was being transformed into the image of the Lord Jesus. And so are we, as we gaze upon him. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with grateful hearts for all the multitude of ways that you bless us and show us your love. And we want to be a people of praise that gives thanks to you. People of praise that expresses your love to others in the most practical of ways. So Lord, work in our hearts afresh. Help us to gain the perspective of your word. Lord, help us look forward to the day 
when the curse will be lifted. Help us to live in light of that. Father, as we go into the week, most of all, help us to keep our eyes firmly fixed upon the face of Jesus as it reflects your glory and your favor shines upon us because of what he has done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.